Welcome to another episode of Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff. We're a couple of high school history teachers who discuss, debate, and deprecate each other's thoughts and ideas about U.S. history and pop culture. In each episode, we aim to create a big picture snapshot of one year in post-World War II America by using significant historical events to contextualize a handful of films, TV shows, and songs. In this episode, we're profiling the year 1953. We'll be discussing two films, the World War II romance drama From Here to Eternity and the risque romantic comedy The Moon is Blue. For television, we're discussing two TV debuts, the anthology series General Electric Theater, hosted by Ronald Reagan, and the family sitcom The Danny Thomas Show. And for music, we'll hear songs from the Percy Faith Orchestra, Patti Page, Dean Martin, Big Mama Thornton, and Hank Williams. But let's first get to the biggest stories of 1953. The Korean War kind of came to an end in 1953. The war began in 1950 when the U.S. supported democratic South Korea from communist-supported North Korea. The war dragged on for about three years with over 35,000 U.S. deaths and over two and a half million Koreans from both sides. An armistice was signed in the summer of 1953 between the two sides and was designed to ensure a complete cessation of hostilities until a final peaceful settlement could be negotiated. That never happened and many North Koreans still consider the war ongoing with the U.S. even today. Dwight D. Eisenhower was inaugurated the 34th President of the United States. In his first year, he established something known as the New Look Policy, stressing the importance of nuclear weapons as a deterrent to military threats, and he authorized massive buildup of nuclear weapons. As the first television president, Eisenhower understood its power to communicate directly with the American people. However, even though he was an experienced public speaker, looking straight into the lens of a television camera was uncomfortable for him, and he had to be coached by some of his Hollywood friends. American medical researcher Dr. Jonas Salk announced he had successfully tested a vaccine against polio for his work in helping to eradicate the disease which is known as infant paralysis. Dr. Salk was celebrated as the great doctor benefactor of his time. I found it remarkable that even after almost 70 years of scientific proof that vaccines work, there were still millions of Americans who refused to be vaccinated for COVID. Crazy. Them's crazy. Those them's crazy people. But perhaps the most infamous story of 1953 was the U.S.-supported overthrow of the democratically elected government of Iran. Earlier in the year, the premier of Iran, Mohammad Mazadegh, expressed interest to nationalize Iran's oil reserves. According to the U.S. government, this not only reeked of a communist threat, but it threatened British and American oil company interests there. So with the help of the CIA and British intelligence, Mazadegh was arrested and imprisoned. The U.S. then helped install a puppet leader, the Shah of Iran, to run the country. However, all of that came back to bite the U.S. in 1978, when the Iranian Revolution broke out, resulting in the overthrow of the Shah, the seizure of the U.S. Embassy, and the holding of 52 Americans as hostages for a year and a half before they were released. The number one box office film was the Disney animated feature Peter Pan. 
halfway decent film, but certainly not a great one. So I, it was in our best interest not to really talk about it. Damn. And I so wanted to talk about Tinkerbell. I bet you did. And her tights, her little skirt. Uh, she may be small, <laughs> but she's cute. <laughs> but we're going to discuss the third top-grossing movie of 1953, and that was From Here to Eternity, a drama romance war film directed by Fred Zinnemann, based on the 1951 novel of the same name by James Jones. Cliff, you've mentioned this book once before, either in casual conversation or on Year View Mirror, and you always mentioned it was one of your favorite reads, but really want you to get into the differences that you saw in the film and the book. The story deals with the tribulations of three U.S. Army soldiers stationed on Hawaii in the months leading up to the attack on Pearl Harbor. It was a star-studded cast featuring Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Cliff, Frank Sinatra, Deborah Kerr, and Donna Reed, all A-list actors at that point in their careers. The film won eight Academy Awards out of 13 nominations, including awards for Best Picture, Best Director, and Adapted Screenplay. And Frank Sinatra won Best Supporting Actor. From Here to Eternity was one of the most successful films of the entire 1950s, and adjusted for inflation, it has earned over $300 million. The film's title originates from Rudyard Kipling's 1892 poem, Gentlemen Rankers, about soldiers of the British Empire who had lost their way and were, quote, damned from here to eternity. Let's listen to a short clip from the film's official trailer. Private Robert E. D. Pruitt, reporting to the company commander is ordered. I'm the regimental boxing coach, you know. I'm sorry, sir, I quit fighting. Just hate to see a good guy get in the gun. You better get used to it, kid. You'll probably see a lot of it before you die. This is a real attack. Japanese planes are bombing our naval and army installations. If you go now, I'll never see you again. I know it. As I mentioned earlier, you were a big fan of the book from which this film was adapted, but help the audience understand why the book was so great and how faithful the film was in preserving the integrity of that book. I think the thing that so struck me about this book and another of James Jones's novels, The Thin Red Line, is his ability to tell both a sweeping narrative while also drilling down hard on character development. Both From Here to Eternity and The Thin Red Line do not contain a single protagonist, which is kind of unusual. In From Here to Eternity, there's two main characters as well as their love interests, and in The Thin Red Line, there's a dozen of them. It's no small feat to tell one person's story well, and yet Jones is able to tell multiple people's stories beautifully. What's also interesting about this book and film is that the story contains one big world-shaking historic event, namely the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Yet James decided to make that event the climax of the book instead of the central plot point. So it just sits there off in the distance and you know it's coming, but the characters do not. They go on living their lives and facing their everyday trials and tribulations, and it's those lives that are what's most important in the novel, what keeps you reading, not the big event that ends it. And while the film version has to take the necessary shortcuts that all film adaptations have to make, especially in this case, as the novel is over 800 pages wow. long, it stays pretty faithful to the book. Now, let's talk about the theme of discrimination in the film, because that was something that really struck me as rather awkward by 21st century standards, at, uh, at least. The one character that experienced the most discrimination in the film was Angelo Maggio, an Italian-American played by Frank Sinatra. Legend has it that Sinatra got the role in the film by means of his alleged mafia connections, and it was the basis for a similar subplot 
in The Godfather. Remember in The Godfather, Cliff, when that notorious scene with the horse's head in the bed? Yes. Yeah, that that was sort of uh, a nod to the alleged connection with Sinatra and From Here to Eternity. Frank Sinatra was of Italian-American heritage. Historically, we associate discrimination with black and brown people, and the level of oppression and discrimination blacks experienced was absolutely far more notorious, violent, and long-lasting than any other group of people. However, it's important to remember that many ethnic groups have been the target of discrimination and persecution in America. Let's not forget the U.S. was founded by white Protestants, and they pretty much remained in power until the late 1800s, when European immigration exploded into the U.S. As more and more immigrants flooded into the country, they became the target of bigotry and prejudice, regardless of their white skin, like Italian-Americans. An argument could be made that the rise of Sinatra's popularity and his portrayal of a victimized Italian-American soldier in eternity ultimately helped the once-scorned ethnic group become more accepted among the dominant white society at that time. Perhaps because of his experience with xenophobia and prejudice, Sinatra became an advocate for social justice, making a PSA against anti-Semitism in the 1940s, defending the civil rights movement in the 50s, and sharing the spotlight with his friend Sammy Davis Jr., who was black. We should also mention the Army and Navy's reactions to the film. Despite the positive response of the critics and public, the Army was reportedly not pleased with this depiction in the finished film and refused to let its name be used in the opening credits. The Navy also banned the film from being shown to its servicemen, calling it, quote, derogatory of a sister service, end quote, and a, quote, discredit to the armed services, end quote. I would assume the film's depiction of discrimination you just discussed was one of the reasons the Army and Navy were not pleased with the film, as bullying people because of their ethnicity isn't a very good look for the armed services to have. Not at all. The film also dealt with corruption in the military. Again, not something the Army and Navy would look kindly on. You know, we've talked a lot over the course of our time on Your View Mirror about Hollywood censorship and specifically the Hayes Code, particularly for movies released in the 1950s and 60s, before the industry replaced the Hayes Code with the Motion Picture Association rating system, which was put into place in 1968 and which is still used today. And this is just a reminder, the Hayes Code provided guidelines to American filmmakers concerning what was considered acceptable film content. By adopting these guidelines, Hollywood film studios avoided government censorship. There were a handful of films in the late 40s and early 50s that challenged the Hayes Code and pushed the limits of what was acceptable on the big screen. From Here to Eternity had to cut all references to homosexuality. The soldiers, by the way, fraternized with male prostitutes in the book. And Karen's infertility, uh, which is Deborah Kerr's character, she experienced infertility from gonorrhea, which was substituted with a reference to a bad miscarriage. And the brothel featured in the book was turned into a gentleman's club with the whores being called hostesses, which I thought would just looked so silly in the film. Another film from 1953 that pushed the envelope was the romantic comedy The Moon is Blue. 
The film starred William Holden, David Niven, and Maggie McNamara. It was directed by Otto Preminger, who also directed the 1957 courtroom drama Anatomy of a Murder, another controversial film that challenged Hayes Code censors. We talked about that film in our 1957 show. The Moon is Blue is based on a 1951 play of the same title which Preminger staged that year in New York City. It's the story of a young woman who meets an architect and quickly turns his and his friend's life upside down. Quite honestly, it's not a very good movie. No, it was not a very good movie. But the reason why we selected it for this show was because of the film's controversy and the depiction of the female protagonist relative to the changing role of women at that time. Let's listen to a short clip from the film's original trailer. The picture stars William Holden, that's me, as Donald Gresham young architect who made plans for after dinner. You know, I think I'll buy some ham and eggs, too. David Niven as David Slater. Suspicions, my child, suspicions, the lurking doubt. Is she or isn't she? Does she or doesn't she? Will she or won't she? Suspicion. The most powerful aphrodisiac in the world. And a bright new star, Maggie McNamara, as Patty O'Neill, the girl who wants to know. But don't you think it's better for a girl to be preoccupied with sex than occupied? I had never seen this movie before watching it for this podcast, and as you previously noted, Cliff, I was not impressed. However, I found the story of how the filmmakers skirted trouble with Hays Code censors really, really fascinating. More importantly, that story says a lot about the changing values of American society at that time. The first two drafts of the film's script were rejected by Hayes Code censors because of its, quote, unacceptably light attitude towards seduction, illicit sex, chastity, and virginity, that's, unquote. That's, yeah, that's a bad one. You have a light attitude towards those things? Yeah. You need to have a heavy attitude I, towards illicit sex. I kid. don't get it, because when I saw that quote, I said, oh, we have to share this with the audience. Preminger and the film's producers said, screw it, and they went ahead with production. Sure enough, when the film was done, the Hayes Code refused to give the film approval. The movie company behind the film, United Artists, decided to release the film without the seal of approval. This is the very first major American film to do that. The film premiered for a, quote, adults-only audience in Chicago, but it was banned in many U.S. cities, including st places in New Jersey, Kansas, Ohio, and Maryland. Preminger and United Artists decided to bring suit in a Maryland court, and in 1953, the court reversed the state censor board. In his ruling, the Maryland judge called the film, quote, a light comedy telling a tale of wide-eyed, brash, puppy-like innocence, unquote, which I thought was actually a pretty on-target description yeah, no, of that's that. that's exactly what this yeah. film is. When Preminger and United Artists filed an appeal in Kansas, the state Supreme Court upheld the State Board of Review's decision to ban the film, determined to win, the director and studio took their case to the freaking Supreme Court of the United States of America, which overturned the finding of the Kansas Supreme Court in 1955. Incredible that this could escalate to the highest court in the land. It's just remarkable. It, well, they had a light attitude towards chastity, seduction, and, and chastity, and, illicit sex. Virginity, of course, got to take it right to the top. 
all of the controversy paid off at the box office because the movie made over four million domestically, and by the end of 1953, it was the nation's 15th highest grossing film. I, I wouldn't pay 14 bucks for this film. The advertising campaign for the film, which had the tagline, the picture everyone is talking about, or how about this one, sensationally funny for adults only, helped draw people away from their televisions and into the cinema seats. Cliff, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the controversy surrounding the film and what you think the controversy said about the changing values of America at that time. I'm not surprised that there was controversy around this film, as the whole thing was pretty risque for the start of the Eisenhower years in America. I found myself shocked at many points in the film, not because the material was shocking to me, but because I knew it would have been to many folks watching it in 1953. The 1950s, while always painted as this stable, homogeneous, wholesome decade, was actually anything but those things. Major turbulence was happening underneath the surface with the rise of the beatniks and the burgeoning civil rights movement, among other developments. And many Americans were starting to cast aside their puritanical roots when it came to things like sex. In other words, the times they was a change in, and the controversy around this film was indicative of that. There's no doubt the success of the film was instrumental in weakening the influence of the Hayes Code. Seven years later, in 1961, the Hayes Code office granted The Moon is Blue and The Man with the Golden Arm, Otto Preminger's similarly controversial release from 1955, the seals of approval they initially withheld. By the way, we'll be covering The Man with the Golden Arm for our 1955 show. Which also stars Frank Sinatra yes, in an in a award-winning performance. What do you think the film says about the changing role of women as of 1953? Well, Patty, the young flirtatious woman at the center of this film, plays an intriguing character. She's an aspiring actress who willingly goes to the apartment of Don, played by William Holden, after just meeting him for several minutes. And she definitely takes charge by relentlessly peppering him with questions including questions about virginity, Cliff. She was a virgin. And she plays this flirtatious, puritanical, innocent virgin, but yet she has this playfulness about her, which was kind of a tease, don't you think, Cliff? I, I just found her as annoying as fuck. Yeah. You know, I just she couldn't stop talking. <laughs> she, she, maybe this is a male-centric view that the two of yeah. us have. Maybe we need a female to watch this show and tell us that we got this wrong, but I really, she did just seem, she just annoyed the living hell out of me. Time to move over to television from 1953. Typically, we cover a show that reflected the general zeitgeist of the era. However, the first show we're going to cover transformed the show's host into an icon who would become the leader of the free world. Ronald Reagan hosted an anthology series called General Electric Theater, which sharpened his speaking skills and on-screen persona at that time, which would lead him in time to become governor of California and then, of course, president of the United States. Reagan started his entertainment career in radio in the 1930s and went on to appear in more than 50 feature films, mostly B-grade movies, including the classic Bedtime for Bonzo. You ever see that one, Cliff? No, I'm trying to see Oh, that actually is. That's a good it's, one? It's, it's, it kind of falls into the same category as The Moon is Blue, actually. I remember when it was Bedtime for Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> Many of us do. Yeah, so I don't really want to go watch Bedtime for Bonzo. Starring Yeah, that's okay. He was president.
president of the Screen Actors Guild for seven years, and he became host of General Electric Theater in 1954, one year after the show's premiere. General Electric Theater ran for nine seasons. Each 30-minute episode was a mix of romance, comedy, adventure, tragedy, fantasy, and variety music. Reagan's role of program host brought much-needed continuity to the disparate anthology offerings. Many of Hollywood's biggest stars performed on the show, including Joe Crawford, Judy Garland, Henry Fonda, and James Dean. Reagan even acted in several episodes along with his then-wife, Nancy. Several broadcasts took place inside Reagan's brand-new all-electric hilltop home in Pacific Palisades, California, serving as the model home and, quote, pointing the way to the electrical future. Oh, that's hot. Oh, it's not. Oh, but delicious. Everything's just right, isn't it, Patty? Yeah. Well, it's the easiest meal to make. My electric servants do everything. Well, that's part of living better electrically. The English muffins. My new toaster toasted them. Then I sprinkled on some grated cheese and put them in the toaster oven down here, and that melted the cheese. My electric appliances do everything. What's electric supplies? They're all the things around the house that make mommy's work easier and run on electricity. Like the coffee maker, for instance. General Electric Theater made the already well-known Reagan very, very wealthy due to his partial ownership in the show. Reagan's contract with GE also entailed work as a motivational speaker for the company. Reagan visited all of GE's 135 research and manufacturing facilities, speaking to over 250,000 employees over his contract. During that time, he would also speak at other forums, such as Rotary Clubs, presenting views on economic progress that in form and content were often similar to what he said on the show as a spokesman for GE. His hosting duties would not only refine his speaking skills, his affiliation with General Electric would convert his personal politics from a New Deal Democrat to a conservative Republican. Reagan later referred to his GE years as his, quote, postgraduate education in political science unquote, and observed that, quote, it wasn't a bad apprenticeship for someone who'd someday enter public life, unquote. He also spoke of his self-conversion during these years and that he ended up preaching sermons about his strongly held beliefs. His speechwriters at the White House frequently admitted using speeches from his GE years as the basis of their own speechwriting efforts. In 1964, two years after he left GE, Reagan delivered a well-known nationalized televised speech in support of conservative Barry Goldwater, the Republican candidate for president that year. That speech laid the groundwork for what would become his political path to the White House. So GE essentially just flipped Reagan's politics. Completely. It's a fascinating story that I knew very little about. And he used to, he was head of the Actors Guild. Yeah. Right? I mean, he was part of the, the head of the Actors Union in Hollywood yeah. back in the day. And yeah. then he totally flips over into the Hardcore one and only conservatism, yeah. Ronald Reagan. Yeah. You could make a play off of, you know, GE, we bring good things to life. GE, we bring staunch Democrats to the conservative side. Yeah, damn well, at least for when it came to old Ronnie. Yeah. Here's an interesting twist to this whole story. Michael Reagan, adopted son of Ronald Reagan, contended that in 1961, U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy pressured GE to cancel the General Electric Theater, or at least to fire Reagan as the host, 
if the program were to continue. Michael claimed Kennedy told GE officials that the company would receive no federal contracts so long as Reagan was host of the series. And and let's keep in mind that back in the 60s, GE was a major defense uh, contractor for the military at that time. So that was a serious threat. The series was canceled one year later in 1962. However, that was primarily because General Electric was being investigated by the federal government for alleged price fixing in the electrical equipment industry, and GE management decided to avoid anything that raised the company's profile needlessly, especially a nationally televised program. They asked Reagan to stay on and continue to be a spokesperson for the company as long as he avoided politics. However, Reagan declined, and so GE seized production of the show. Michael Reagan also claimed the show's cancellation propelled Reagan into the political arena. Several years later, in 1967, Reagan became governor of California, and he served two terms. Then, in 1980, he was elected the 40th president of the United States and served two terms. Whether you are a Reagan supporter or not, the fact that Ronald Reagan became known as the great communicator by way of his Hollywood and television experience forever changed how American citizens perceived all U.S. presidents afterwards. The other television series from 1953 we need to talk about is The Danny Thomas Show, starring, of course, Danny Thomas. I didn't see that one coming. Thomas was a successful film actor, singer, and nightclub comedian before producing and starring in the TV show Make Room for Daddy in 1953. They changed the title to The Danny Thomas Show after three seasons, in 1956. The show was produced by Desilu Productions, which was the production company owned by Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Not surprisingly, The Danny Thomas Show didn't stray far from a similar premise as I Love Lucy. Thomas played Danny Williams, a successful nightclub entertainer at a New York City nightclub, pretty much the same role Desi Arnaz played in I Love Lucy. The biggest difference, however, was that Thomas played a father that rarely spent time with his family as a result of his traveling entertainment career, leaving his wife to deal with the children pretty much on her own. That was a story all too common for millions of families in the 50s through the 1970s. In fact, the original title of the show, Make Room for Daddy, is based on the premise that when Daddy was on the road, the kids get to sleep in bed with Mommy, but when Daddy came back home, the kids were forced to sleep in empty dresser drawers in order to make room for Daddy. I hate that. That I'm so glad they changed the name. Yeah. Make Room for Daddy is just a bad bad name. And the idea of kids sleeping in empty dresser drawers, what's up with that? Who the hell puts a kid in a dresser drawer? I won't. Apparently, back in the 50s, Danny Thomas did. (laughs) Let's listen to a clip from season one where Danny is working at his nightclub job and he reveals to the audience the dilemma of being an entertainer and a father to his 11-year-old daughter, Terry, who's growing up too fast. You know, I'm not complaining. I, I love to work in the nightclubs, but it just, well, it takes me away from my family. Gosh, Kids are growing up without me. And that little pink bundle, Terry. Boy, she's growing so fast. I can remember not so long ago, I'd say, go next door, dear, and play with the little boy. Then you'd send your daughter off to play with the little boy next door. You'd give her just two words of advice. Have fun. <laughs> daughter grows up. She has a date with the boy next door. You still give her two words of advice. Watch out. <laughs> We've covered a bunch of 1950s television shows that were family-based sitcoms. Father Knows Best, I Love Lucy, Leave It to Beaver, The Donna Reed Show, 
the Dick Van Dyke Show. It's a convention that continues into the 21st century, and it's probably never going to go away. The Danny Thomas Show may have been unique in addressing the plight of working dads and not having enough time with their children. However, given all the shows I just mentioned, there really wasn't anything all that unique with the Danny Thomas Show that distinguished it from any of the others. Totally agree. For its first three seasons, the show garnered decent ratings, but failed to make the list of the top 30 programs. Shortly after the third season, however, finished filming, Jean Hagen, who played the mother, left the show over dissatisfaction with her role and frequent clashes with Danny Thomas. Thomas was upset with her leaving and felt the show would not last without her. However, he decided to push on. At the start of the fourth season, both Thomas and producer Sheldon Leonard were faced with a serious dilemma. How to explain Hagen's absence? To have Danny and his TV wife divorce in that era would have been unacceptable to television audiences. So it was explained that Margaret had died suddenly off screen. It was a risky move because until this time, no character on a TV situation comedy had died on or off screen, for that matter, the transition between the two mothers proved to be the turning point in the show's success. However, it didn't hurt that The Danny Thomas Show took over I Love Lucy's time slot once that show ended. The show peaked into its fifth season, reaching number two. The show ended in 1964 after 11 seasons. A sequel, Make Room for Granddaddy, was oh, attempted God. in 1970, <laughs> but that only lasted, thankfully, one year. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> one of the things I found fascinating about Danny Thomas is that Danny Thomas, he wasn't born Danny Thomas. No. That's his stage name. He was born... Amos Muziad Yakub Karuz. Oh, so he's um, he's Lebanese. Oh, Leban he's Lebanese. Wow. His, his parents were Maronite Christians from Lebanon. So the idea that he had Arabic descent is interesting that he would become the, a beloved American TV icon. Let's talk about the music of 1953. It's important to remember that just one year later in 1954, Rock and roll exploded onto the pop culture scene with acts like Elvis Presley, Big Joe Turner, and Bill Haley and his Comets. So I guess we can credit this first song as the last gasp of easy listening music before the world changed and rock and roll took over. It's Song from Moulin Rouge by Percy Faith and his orchestra. And believe it or not, this was the number one year-ending song in 1953. The song first appeared in the 1952 film Moulin Rouge, and it was performed by the Italian singer Mantovani. However, after Percy Faith released his version in early 1953, it peaked at number one and stayed there for a remarkable 10 weeks. Percy Faith was a Canadian-American composer and bandleader who had a string of instrumental hits in the 50s and 60s. He remains the only artist to have the best-selling single of the year during both the pop singer era, this song, Song from Moulin Rouge, and the rock era, his 1960s song, Theme from a Summer Place. I find it remarkable that a song this serene, this boring, would be the number one song of 1953, but again, one year later, Elvis Presley would shake his hips and sing like a black guy, and easy-listening orchestrated songs like this one would become relics of the pop culture past. How much is that doggy in the window? 
This next song is considered a novelty song. Novelty songs which have a history going all the way back to the early 20th century and are built upon some form of gimmick concepts such as a piece of humor or a sample of popular culture. The public had shown a big appetite for novelty songs around this time with hits like Bing Crosby's Pistol Packin' Mama and Merv Griffin's I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts. <laughs> this one, How Much Is That Doggy in the Window, was sung by Patti Page. It went to number one on the Billboard charts and stayed there for eight weeks. It sold over two million copies and was the third best-selling song of 1953. Page was primarily known for pop and country music. She was the top-charting female vocalist and best-selling female artist of the 1950s and sold over 100 million records during a six-decade-long career. The song tells the story of a girl who desperately wanted to buy her sweetie a puppy before he took off for California. Mercury Records, the record's distributor, was besieged with requests for free puppies, and the American Kennel Club's annual registration spiked by 8% in the months after the song's release. In 2009, Patti Page recorded a version of the song with a new title. Do you see that doggy in the shelter? Kind of a bummer. <laughs> right? Yeah, it is a bit of a bummer. The royalties to that song were given exclusively to the Humane Society of the United States. And according to Paige, she wanted to call attention to the cruelty of puppy mills that churn out puppies at the cost of dogs' health and well-being. According to some music historians, novelty songs like Doggy led to an embrace of rock and roll by 1954. Songs like the previous one, which we just discussed, the music scene was ripe for something new, something to shake, rattle, and roll listeners out of their complacency. So I guess in some way, a silly song like this, Cliff, laid the musical groundwork for the coming rock and roll revolution, which kicked off the following year with artists like Elvis, Bill Haley, and Big Joe Turner. We move from one dog-themed song to another, although this one definitely had more bite and snarl than the last one. I'll say. It's Hound Dog by Big Mama Thornton. You ain't nothing but a hound dog when moving on my door. Most people recognize this song with the version performed by Elvis Presley in 1956. Presley's version, which sold 10 million copies globally, was his best-selling song and an emblem of the rock and roll revolution. But the song was first recorded and released by Big Mama Thornton in 1953. It was written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, one of the most prolific and successful songwriting duos in the history of popular music. They wrote or co-wrote over 70 charts-topping songs over their 32-year career. It's remarkable. By the way, one of the best Broadway musicals that I have ever seen was called Smokey Joe's Cafe, which featured many of Lieber and Stoller's hits. I've never seen a Broadway musical, and I never am going to. Oh, then Cliff, you're missing out on a part of American culture. Are you serious? You've never gone into New York City Fuck. to see a Broadway show? No! The story goes that Lieber and Stoller heard Big Mama Thornton rehearse several songs in the garage of a musician friend of theirs early in 1953. Lieber recalled years later in an interview, quote, She knocked us cold. She looked like the biggest, baddest, saltiest chick you ever saw. And she was mean, a lady bear. She must have been 350 pounds, and she had all of these scars all over her face, conveying words which could not be sung, end quote. 
It didn't take long to realize they found their muse, and before they reached the parking lot to head home, Lieber said he had the rhythm to the song in his head. So Lieber used a black slang expression that referred to a man who sought a woman to take care of him. The song's opening line, You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog, was a euphemism for a woman throwing a gigolo out of her house and her life. Lieber also claimed, and it's hard to disagree, the song, quote, helped spur the evolution of black R&B into rock music, end quote. There's no question it's a powerful vocal performance, and it set a high bar for all future harder-edged rock and roll singers. Thornton's Hound Dog differed from most of the rhythm and blues records of the era in its sparse arrangement. It's supported by the simplicity of what would become the standard rock and roll arrangement, guitar, bass, and drums. She explodes with confidence, and she set the style for rock and roll by putting sexuality in the foreground. And bow wow to all of you. One of the biggest hits of 1953 came from singer and actor Dean Martin, one of the most revered performers and celebrities of the mid-20th century. This song, That's Amore, first appeared in the soundtrack of the 1953 comedy film The Caddy, starring Martin and his longtime stage partner Jerry Lewis. When the stars make you drool just like a pastel amore. The song is a charming, goofy parody of popular Neapolitan organ grinder music that helped rehabilitate Italy's image as a land of magic and romance. The song's lyrics compare love to his favorite Italian foods, pizza and pasta fagioli. It's a quirky, romantic song that pokes fun at Italian stereotypes, something Martin, born Dino Crocetti, had every right to do. Yeah, and it's also a song, as I was thinking about it, as you were just talking, how this song is this sort of this romance to uh, being Italian when the movie that we referenced earlier in the show, From Here to Eternity, had a major discriminatory case against Italian-Americans, and yet here's a song that sort of elevates Italian-Americans to a, a much more sympathetic and emotional appeal about being Italian. As you noted, Martin gained his career breakthrough with comedian Jerry Lewis billed as Martin and Lewis way back in 1946. They performed in nightclubs and later had numerous appearances on radio, television, and many films. And just to prove to you all that Martin had a voice like slow-cooked marinara, let's hear Martin sing along to the song with his partner, Jerry Lewis. And this comes from the 1953 film, The Caddy. I gotta be honest, Cliff, I was a big Jerry Lewis fan, and much more than Dean Martin. And I always liked Dean Martin more so than Jerry Lewis, yeah. In the 50s, Martin was one of the most popular acts in Las Vegas and was known for his friendship with fellow artists Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr., who together with several others formed the Rat Pack. In the 1960s, Martin was the host of the television variety program The Dean Martin Show, and from 1974 to 1984, he was roast master on the popular Dean Martin Celebrity Roast, which drew celebrities, comedians, and politicians. The last song from 1953 worthy of discussion is this one, Your Cheatin' Heart by Hank Williams. Your cheating heart will make you weak. 
covered Hank Williams once before on Yearview Mirror, he is, quite simply, one of the most important and influential musical artists in American popular music history. He's often referred to as the king of country music. He recorded 55 singles that reached the top 10 of the Billboard Country and Western bestsellers chart, including 12 that reached number one. The Pulitzer Prize jury awarded him a posthumous special citation in 2010 for his, quote, craftsmanship as a songwriter who expressed universal feelings with poignant simplicity and played a pivotal role in transforming country music into a major musical and cultural force in American life. This would be one of Williams' last songs recorded and released to the public. He died on New Year's Day, 1953, from pretty much too much drinking at the age of only 29. This song is regarded as one of country music's most important standards. Williams was inspired to write the song while on the road with his fiancée at the time. After describing his first wife as a cheating heart, in minutes he dictated the lyrics to his fiancée. I gotta say, the song sounds more regretful than vengeful, making Hank's late-life struggles with physical pain, heartache, and addiction all the more sad. The song solidified the legacy of Hank Williams as a haunted, lonely figure who expressed pain with an authenticity that became the standard for country music afterwards. Gotta be honest, Cliff, I hold Hank Williams in the same regard as Bob Dylan, an undeniable songwriting talent that established a standard all songwriters after them would follow, but damn, his voice and style of singing just didn't appeal to me. Yeah, I was never particular to old Hank. His stuff is mostly too sad and slow for me, and yeah. you know, I'm a happy and optimistic <laughs> dude. <laughs> yes, that is one of the reasons why I love to hang out with you, yeah. bud. Because uh, it's nothing but happy times over here. And Hank, you know, it's just, you know. There is a weight in the way he sings the lyrics of his songs. There's just an overwhelming weight of sadness well, reminds, and pain. Yeah, it reminds me of the old joke about what happens when you play a country song backwards. You know, you get your truck back, you get your girl back, you get your dog back. You know, because that's all it is. It's about losing shit. I love that. We'll tell on you. It's time to reveal our personal favorite entertainment release from 1953. I picked the classic western Shane, starring Van Heflin and Alan Ladd, and directed by the great George Stevens. The story is a cliché western with a small group of settlers taking on a powerful land baron with a gunslinging stranger who rides into town to save the day, only to ride back out again alone and unable to escape his gunslinging past. Actually, very, very reminiscent of the Unforgiven premise. I've seen this movie several times and I could see it again tomorrow. I love the pacing of this movie and the film's depiction of violence for 1953 was brutal and cold-blooded. It's one of my favorite westerns of all time, plus it contained one of Hollywood's best endings. Cliff, come back! Cliff, come back! How about you, Cliff? Over the course of this show, I've picked films, songs, albums, TV shows, novels, and non-fiction books as my personal faves, but I've yet to pick a short story, so it's time to check off another box. I'm going with the short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, by the first lady of short story writers, Flannery O'Connor, which was first published in the multi-author short story anthology, Modern Writing One, in 1953, and would later appear in O'Connor's own collection, A Good Man is Hard to Find, and other stories, in 1955. 
five. In her own words, O'Connor described it as, quote, the story of a family of six which, on its way driving to Florida from Georgia, is slaughtered by an escaped convict who calls himself the misfit, end quote, which pretty much gives everything away, but knowing how the story ends should not keep you from checking out this amazing story. It's that good. Hey, well, that does it for this show. If anyone's interested to learn more about the stuff featured in the episode, the films, music, and TV discussed, please visit our website, KenandCliff.com. You'll find links to additional reading, Spotify song lists, letterbox lists, and an opportunity to contact us about what you like and don't like about the show. Please listen next week as we step back only several years and cover the year 2019. We'll discuss the films Joker, Hustlers, and Parasite, and we're only going to be talking about one TV debut that year, but it's a good one, Chernobyl. And we'll also hear songs from Billie Eilish, Post Malone, Ariana Grande, and a collaboration between Little Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus. Please share your view mirror with Ken and Cliff with your friends and family, Dean Martin, Big Mama Thornton, Hank Williams. I know they're all dead, but you can still, you know, share it to their their kin, their corpse. Yeah. Their corpses. <laughs> you can always find us on KenandCliff.com and drop us a message about what you like and don't like. Join us next time on Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff.